And we'll read from just verse 17 down to 25. This is the, the point, as we were thinking last week, when Jeremiah is really reaching the bottom of his um, despair. He says in verse 17, And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. I forgot prosperity. And I said, My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall, my soul hath them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. Amen. We trust the Lord his blessing uh, to that uh, reading of his holy and inspired word. As I said last time we were uh, studying this book together, we looked at verses 1 through to uh, 21 there. And we noted, didn't we, how this, uh, in one sense, Jeremiah was, was reaching this peak of his sorrow. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to say the depths of his sorrow. He was, uh, the language was just spiralling down and down as, uh, uh, as Jeremiah was lamenting his situation. We noted all these different pictures in these opening uh, verses that he employs here to describe his affliction. Pictures such as being a, a prisoner, chained, or an aged man, or a, he talks about himself being like a besieged city, even as someone uh, rotting in the grave there in verse 4. And God, he felt, no longer heard his cry in verse 8. He felt that God was against him. And Jeremiah, we noted, was filled with bitterness in, in verse 15. And in verses 17 and 18 that we just read. He reaches really rock bottom and he's languishing in despair. His hope is gone. His strength, he says, is perished. He he seems to have no peace, he says. He seems to have lost all confidence in God's. Before he had been confident of God's help, his hope was in the Lord. You can read through the book of Jeremiah just uh, listen to some of the words. If you just turn with me, for example, to Jeremiah chapter 3, early on in his prophecy. Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse um, 23. He says there, Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. You see, his he says salvation may be hoped for outside of God, but you can't find it outside of God. It's only in God that we can have our hope. But especially chapter 17, we notice this, especially his hope being in the Lord. If you go to chapter 17, there's numerous references here to his hope being in, in God. Verse 7, chapter 17 and verse 7. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. And then again you go into verse 13, and look at this description that he gives of the Lord. Chapter 17, verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. 
and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, and so on. He describes the Lord there as the hope of Israel. Or you go down into verse 17. He says, There be not a terror unto me, thou art my hope in the day of evil. This was Jeremiah's faith, you see, was in the Lord. It was, that was his hope. But that's not what we find Jeremiah saying here now in Lamentations chapter 3. Verse 18, my strength and my hope is perished, he says. In Jeremiah chapter 16, he had boldly asserted that the Lord was my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction. But now here in his, in his utter despair, he says, my strength is perished from the Lord there in verse 18. He recalls the wormwood and the gall. He remembers his bitterness and I think as we read these words, we're reminded, aren't we, that even the best of God's people may despair. Even the most godly Christian may at times be cast down. Doubts may come into the mind even of a believer, and and when they do, they cloud the spiritual senses. And so the believer's perceptions of God become blurred and, and distorted and can leave the person in misery and hopelessness. And their peace can be destroyed, can't it? Their happiness begins to crumble. And here, Jeremiah, one of the most godly of all of the Lord's prophets, and yet here he is in his misery, in his bitterness. And it reminds us, doesn't it, that even we can face times like this of affliction and trial. But we said last time that now that he's at rock bottom, that the, it's then that the tone of the lament changes. And we read those verses there, verses 20 and 21. It's when he was humbled, when he was brought to this lowest point, the depths of his sorrow and despair, that he now begins to regain some hope in verse 21. I think it's worth just uh, pausing here on verse 21 for a moment and just noting some of the aspects of this transition. We perhaps, uh, in our eagerness, would want to dive straight into those glorious words of verse 22 and following and, you know, want to look at these sublime truths. But I think it's Uh, helpful for us just to pause for a moment and note how does Jeremiah get there rather than just thinking last week from verse 21 and jumping this week into the next section how is it that Jeremiah goes from being in the utter depths of despair to then focusing upon God and being positive and being taken up with the Lord's uh, glory and of his person because it you know it isn't just that one day he just sort of snapped out of this mood you know, it wasn't one day that he just, you know, started praising God and everything changed. There was a, a process here. And I think we could note two things in this, in this process. And the first is that his change came through wrestling with God. There was a, a wrestling. Jeremiah had gone through this period of despair and grief, but there's been a great wrestling going on. He's been weighing up these, these matters in his mind. There's, there's been this conflict, this battle in his heart and in his thoughts. And of course, this is something that we see with so many others in the scriptures, you, uh, especially people who are in great affliction. Before the deliverance comes, there's this sense of uh, this wrestling. Before their darkness turns to light, they have this inward struggle. You think about David, for example. Think of Psalm 42 and verse 5. He cries out, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And, and there's this inward struggle within him his internal battle and he's speaking with himself speaking with his soul why why soul are you feeling this way 
And he goes on, doesn't he, in that verse to say, Hope thou in God. And that inward struggle leads him out into praise for the Lord. And you can think of Asaph in Psalm 73, that familiar psalm, and the same there, and a different context. But you remember he looks at uh, the wicked, he sees them prospering and so on. And you can see him talking to himself, looking at these things, weighing them up, wrestling with them. And of course, not until verse 17, it's not until he goes into the sanctuary that he understands their end. And then you come to the end of the chapter, having wrestled with all these thoughts. He says, it's good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God. Of course, there's other examples. You could add a Hezekiah, for example, to the list. He's the, he, he wrestles, doesn't he, with God in his bed of sickness. And he comes out victorious and... It's a reminder to us that if we get into these times of despair, we need to fight, as it were, and wrestle. Fights the good fight. It's through much tribulation, we're told, isn't it, in Acts 14, that we shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And like Jacob, we should wrestle with God and be resolved not to let him go till we receive a blessing from him, until he brings us out of our misery. And it's through such wrestling here that Jeremiah in Lamentations 3 is able to emerge victorious and reflect and turn to the Lord. But the second aspect of this uh, transition that we notice here is he employs his memory. He employs his memory. In verse 21 there he says, This I recall to my mind. I recall this to my mind. He's using his memory. And of course memory is a, a faculty of the soul. Um, And before we're saved, it's primarily used by the devil to torment us. Um, You think about this, he loves, doesn't he, to recall previous sins and afflict us with this and then convict us and highlight our guilt. And and people, you, you know, the older people get, the more they, as they think back over their lives, they're tormented by memories and guilt. But when we're saved, the memory then can be turned and employed for goods. In verse 19, you notice that Jeremiah was still remembering his affliction. But now in 21, he begins to recall different things to his mind. And his memory turns. And that's what we have to do in our times of affliction when we're downcast. We're to remember God's word, for example. We're to remember God's promises. We can remember God's nature. That's what Jeremiah is going to do here. He turns and he begins to stir up his memory and remind himself of what the Lord is like. It reminds us, I think, of Christian, doesn't it, in Pilgrim's Progress. Remember, he wanders off the path with hopeless. They get cast into Doubting Castle. There's giant despair and he beats them with his cudgel and he's... He's got them there and they're in despair and and everything seems down and he offers to him, doesn't he, to to take your own life. And you remember that it's Christian then remembers that he has the key of promise. And he takes that key of God's promises and he unlocks his chains and they can unlock the doors and they're able to escape from Doubting Castle. And here Jeremiah does the same. He turns to God's. And he focuses upon him and upon God's character and his promises. And of course the promises of God flow from his character. And so here in verses 22 through to 25, he then focuses really on four aspects of God, four aspects of God's divine nature. 
And the first is there in verse 22. He focuses on divine compassion. This is the first shaft of light, as it were, that uh, comes through after all this murmuring and complaining that Jeremiah's been doing. And he says there, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. And he acknowledges that it's because of the Lord's mercies, God's mercies, that they haven't been consumed, they haven't been destroyed. And you recall that previously he thought that God was attacking him. He thought God was ready to pounce like a lion or a bear upon him to destroy him. God, he, he described as drawing a bow, ready to fire his arrows to, to hit him. But, but now he begins to realise that the Lord has actually been merciful to him. And he uses the plural there, it's of the Lord's mercies. God has displayed mercy after mercy after mercy. It's because his mercies are many and plenteous that, he, that they haven't been consumed. The word uh, that's translated mercies there is that Hebrew word I'm sure that you've come across numerous times before, that word hesed. It's a word that... Uh, we struggle, in a sense, in the English language to adequately and satisfactorily translate. It's, you know, one word doesn't really do justice to the, the meaning of the words. Sometimes it's translated as kindness, sometimes loving kindness. Um, occasionally it's rendered as goodness. Um, and the word really brings all those things together. Mercy, loving kindness, goodness. It's, it's because this... Jeremiah says here, this is the reason why God has not consumed them. This is the reason why they haven't been finished. The word consumed there means to bring to an end. He says, this is the reason why we haven't been brought to an utter end and consumed by the Lord. And so Jeremiah is concluding here, the Lord has actually been gentle with them. Actually, the Lord has acted out of divine compassion upon them. That word... uh, is often translated their compassion as tender mercy. It's, it's, it's a mercy and a compassion that represents the, the strongest inner feeling of love and affection. This is the, the love, the compassion that a mother has for her children. This is an unconditional love, an unconditional compassion. And he says here that this love, this compassion, it never fails, it never ends, it never dries up. And so the Lord then has not actually dealt with them as they deserve. Jeremiah now sees, look, you know, if they had been consumed, that would have been just. That would have been right. And what a, you see, what a turnaround here in the prophet's thinking. Before, in verses 1 through to 21, all he could see was God's wrath. But now, in his place, he sees God's mercy. Before he could only think of his, his bitterness, but now he sees God's compassion and his, and his love. He realises now that eternal wrath and eternal damnation should have been his lot. But he was actually on the receiving end of God's divine compassion. And friends, isn't this what we must always do in the midst of our trials and afflictions? We need to remember that Whatever we receive, we deserve. And ultimately, we deserve far more. We deserve hell. We deserve everlasting death. But so often in the midst of our trials, we can only think of our miseries, can't we? We can only think of the pain that we're going through and the affliction and so on. And we we don't perceive our true condition. That whatever the Lord brings upon us is in his mercy. 
It's in his compassion. Even when God strikes us with the, with the rod of affliction and seeks to correct us, we should see his loving kindness. When we compare our sin with even the hardest stroke that our Heavenly Father lays on us, we will see that there is, there's much mercy in it. You think about what the Lord demands. When we sin, the Lord demands death, but God's strokes always fall short of that, and he deals with us as he deals like with a child. And so we can say, can't we, we're not consumed. Matthew Henry there on that word consumed, he goes straight to the burning bush. A lot of, a lot of commentators do this. Of course, the burning bush was used as an illustration of the persecuted church. It faces fire, it faces torment and anguish. It may appear from a distance that the bush is, is being burnt to a crisp, but when you, you know, on closer inspection you see the bush is not consumed. And of course that's true of God's church, isn't it? God may at times correct his church, and he may correct us as believers, but we will never be consumed. He may purge away the dross, he may get rid of the hay and the wood and the stubble, but it's only so that the gold and the silver may, may shine to his praise and for his glory. And I think we can see here this evening that this, is, this should be a comfort to us. The Lord may correct us, yes, but we will not be consumed. He may afflict us, yes, but his compassions will not fail. The Lord in his loving kindness will always sustain his people. You remember the words of Malachi chapter 3 and, and verse 6. He says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And so there's the first thing that Jeremiah focusing, the first shaft of light. Here he thinks of the divine compassion, but he moves on in verse 23 to speak of divine faithfulness. He says, They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He's still speaking here of God's mercies, God's compassion, but now he adds that they're new every morning because God is faithful. And Jeremiah here is reminding us that God's character never changes. He is faithful. His kindness is constant. His love never alters. His compassion stays the same. Of course, our experience of these things may alter and change, just as clouds may come between the sun and hide the sun for a time, and so our experience of these things may change. But the Lord is the same, and he changes not. And this is a a wonderful truth, because our wants are constant, aren't they? Our needs, they, they never end. And yet God in his faithfulness sustains us and provides for us. We only have to look at creation to see this, to see divine faithfulness, don't we? The animals and the birds are provided for every day. You read through the scriptures, the young raven is fed, the lily is clothed by God, the fowls of the air, they neither sow nor reap, yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. The sun rises and sets. The seasons come and go. Think of uh, Psalm 147, how it describes there that he covers, talks about covering the heavens, doesn't it, with rain and so on. It speaks about the creation. And... Uh, he sendeth forth his commandments upon the earth, in verse 15, he gives snow like wool, and so on. And it talks about there how he causeth his wind to blow and the waters to flow. 
And uh, he covereth the heaven with clouds and prepares the rain for the earth and so on. And he makes the grass to grow upon the mountains. Every morning, every new day, Jeremiah says to us, is an infallible witness to the faithfulness of God. And these supplies of uh, mercy and compassion he describes here as being new. New every morning, they're fresh. They, just as there's a, you know, a freshness and a fragrance to a, a new day as the sun rises, so there's a, a freshness and a, and a fragrance to God's mercies. You notice too how Jeremiah speaks there of the morning in, in verse 23. I think he's reminding us there of just how timely God's provision is. It's always early, it always, it's always there, as it were, in the morning, ready for us. The divine supply, in a sense, is always ahead of our daily needs. And so Jeremiah concludes at the end of the verse, Great is thy faithfulness. It's, it's great, it's, it's enormous. He is always faithful. And God displays his great faithfulness to us, morning by morning. And you think about... God's faithfulness. He, he was faithful to his son, wasn't he? He sent him into the world to save sinners and he promised that he would raise him up on the third day. He was faithful to all that he promised to Christ. And now he's faithful to his covenant. When we come repenting and believing in his son, we read that God is faithful, isn't he? And he's just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And is he not also faithful to his people? Has he not been faithful to you over the years? Can you not testify as you've sought to live for him, how he's upheld you and he's strengthened you day by day, even as you've gone through affliction and trials? Has he not provided you with grace after grace and mercy after mercy? Has he not been merciful to you and forgiven you of all your sins? Has he not picked you up when you've stumbled and failed him and come short of his glory? Has he not also been faithful to you when when you've gone through the flames of affliction or through floods of temptation? He's always there, isn't he? Upholding us with the right hand of his power. And when you just pause and you you think about it, what would have have happened if that, that flow of God's mercy and compassion at any moment had ceased or dried up? Would it have not been the end? Would we have not been consumed? But no, Jeremiah says, no, God is faithful. Great, he says, is thy faithfulness. But then he moves on to a third aspect of, a third shaft, as it were, a third part of God's uh, character in verse 24 there. And this time he reflects on divine sufficiency. Divine sufficiency. He says, the Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. And that expression there at the beginning of the verse is one that appears a number of times throughout the the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few examples. You don't have to turn to them, but Psalm 16, verse 5, for example, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Psalm 73 that we thought about just a moment ago, verse 26, my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or Psalm 142, verse 5, I cried unto thee, O Lord, I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion 
in the land of the living. And I'll be honest that the, this expression always used to puzzle me. When the, when, you know, when the psalmist says, the Lord is my rock, I can understand that, that picture. We all know what a rock is. We all know the understanding of, of, of what a rock is and so on. When the Lord is my shepherd, again, we can understand what the, what the psalmist is saying there. And we can think about so many of them, the Lord is my fortress or my shield and so on. There's, sort of, there's a, an easy picture for us. But when it came to the Lord is my portion, I always used to sort of ever not really understand what the, you know, the psalmist or Jeremiah here was driving at. But I think uh, to understand it, we need to take ourselves back into the days of Joshua, when the land of, the, remember the land of promise was being divided up and it was being allotted to all the different tribes. This is your bit of land and this is your portion and parcel and so on. And uh, it's here in the book of Joshua that you find the word used the most, this word portion or part. And uh, each part that was given belonged to them, it was theirs. That's yours, Simeon, that's yours, Judah, and so on. But the interesting thing is that when the land was being divided up and there was these allotted portions or parts, you recall that the tribe of Levi never was given any part of the land. There was no portion or part for them. But if you just turn with me to Numbers chapter 18, the Lord spoke to the tribe of Levi and he gives a command to them. Numbers chapter 18, and if we go to verse 20, Numbers chapter 18 and verse 20, it says, And the Lord spake unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them, that's the same word that's translated as portion in Lamentations 3. And he says, I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. And so the tribe of Levi, they couldn't point to a particular plot of land and say, well, this belongs to me. But instead, the Levite was to look to the Lord's and they were to say, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my part. This is my inheritance. And this is what Jeremiah is saying here. The Lord belongs to me. And of course, if we were to move this into a New Testament context, we're all kings and priests unto God. And so we're all as New Testament believers to say, the Lord is my portion. We don't look at a land and say, this is mine. But we look to the Lord and the Lord is our inheritance. And this is the sense of these words here in in chapter 3. Jeremiah is saying, the Lord is my portion, and as my portion, I desire and need nothing else. God is sufficient for me. The Lord satisfies, in a sense, every, my every desire. Jerusalem may be burned, you know, the, the temple may be in utter ruins, I may have no food, I, I may have no comforts, but God, as God, he's all that I need. And because God is my portion, I I am now content. And we have to say, of course, that no one will ever be content until God is their portion. It's only God, isn't it, who truly satisfies. It's only God who is truly sufficient. But I often think about when when Joshua was dividing up the lands and allotting the different land. Some of the tribes received so much more, didn't they, than others. And I wonder whether some of them complained, you know, well, I got a bit of a rocky hill and you got a wonderful, lush part of a valley. Well, this isn't, doesn't seem to be fair. 
And knowing the children of Israel, they probably murmured and complained about some of these things. I think it's a bit like children, isn't it? You know, when it comes to serving up pudding, you can guarantee, can't you, that when you bring out the cake and it's in the bowls, that one of them will look at the other person's bowl and says, well, their bit's bigger than mine. And it's not fair and so on. But when it comes to the, to the Lord, what a portion we have. We can't complain, can we? Because the Lord, Jehovah, he is our lot. What we have in Christ is, is the greatest thing that you could possibly imagine. Greater than the treasures of this earth. Greater than, than owning this world. I mean, he's the, he's the richest portion. Christ became poor so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. He's the greatest portion. He's an unchanging portion. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. He's a, a secure portion. You think about Job. He lost his sheep, he lost his camels, he lost his servants, he lost his own children, but he never lost his gods. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, has written a whole, I don't know how long the book is, it may be 100 pages all on this, just this text, the Lord is my portion. But he says this, God is a portion that the fire cannot burn, nor the floods cannot drown, nor the thief cannot steal, nor the enemy cannot seize, nor the soldier cannot plunder. He says, a man may take away my gold from me, but he cannot take away my gods. You see, he's a, he's a satisfying portion. If you, if you have Christ, you have everything that you need. Let me give you just a, another Thomas Brooks quote again. He says, God is a portion beyond all imagination, all expectation, all apprehension, and all comparison. And therefore, he who has him cannot but sit down and say, I have enough. And so, believer, tonight we, we have the Lord as our portion. Isn't that a wonderful truth? We can say, can't we, like in the Song of Solomon, my beloved is mine and I am his. Should we lose everything in this world, our God will still be our God. And so Jeremiah says here, the Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. But then he moves on to a final aspect of God's character, a fourth thing. He's talked about divine compassion and divine faithfulness and divine sufficiency. But then he focuses lastly on divine goodness. <coughs> and this is the, the final thing that he draws comfort for himself, that God is good. And of course every part of God is good, isn't it? He's intrinsically good, not like, not like us. We're the, there's none that doeth good, is there? I don't know if you've seen, um, as you drive out of Ripon towards the A1, as you go to the old A1 and the, a, uh, the 168, there's a big poster on the side of the road there for uh, one of the primary schools. And of course, it's the, it's the thing to do today, isn't it, to advertise your primary school. You put what the Ofsted report says. And in big letters it says, We are good. And I thought to myself, well, you may have got a good Ofsted report and so on, but none of us are good, are we? But God is good, intrinsically good, and he doeth good, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 119. Everything that God does is good. And Jeremiah makes the point here that if we're to receive his goodness, we must wait on him. He says, the Lord is good unto them that wait for him. Of course, waiting is one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? But we must seek him. 
and wait for him. We must pray to him. This is a principle that's still true today. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. And if we seek him, we'll find that he is good. If we wait upon him, we'll find that he is good. And here's an encouragement tonight for us as we come to pray, isn't it? That we can come and we can pray to one who is good. And here's an encouragement tonight for anyone who's still seeking God for the first time. He's good. And I think as we come to the place of prayer in a few moments... We have to remember, don't we, these promise that he will give us goodness. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. He promises that no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. But we must wait on him. We must seek him. And so friends, tonight when we, when we come to pray, we need to remember this. We don't come before some, some tyrants. We don't come before, you know, like some dictator who only wants to hear what he wants to hear, only wants to do what he wants to do. We come to one who's willing to answer our prayers, one who's willing to give us good things. I think if we knew how generous God is, we would come more often. If we realised just how good our God is, we would seek him more and wait upon him more. Well, as we, in a moment, come to prayer, may this spur us on in our prayers to ask, knowing that the Lord is indeed good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him.